The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, beginning at verse 1, our Lord says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, when I was in seminary, one of the big debates that was raging through the halls of this venerable educational institution was the question of syncretism. Syncretism, for those of you who don't know, is the practice of blending together the religious beliefs of multiple religions to create something new. And so, for example, one religion that many people agree is an example of syncretism is the practice of Santeria in Cuba. On its surface, Santeria is Catholic, but just underneath its complex system of saints and icons lies a kind of tribal paganism um, in which the traditional saints of the Christian faith are simply stand-ins for uh, tribal gods and goddesses. That's a pretty cut and dry example. You have a pagan polytheistic religion covered with a veneer of Christianity and the teachings, beliefs, practices, and doctrines of Santeria are a blend of paganism and Christianity. But it's very rare that the question of syncretism is so clear cut. As Christianity travels through and between cultures, it picks up these unique things in every context through which it moves. And so in our own culture, in our own practice of the Christian faith, we have strange and unique practices that we've picked up in various forms from other religions. Our Christmas trees and Advent wreaths come from pagan fertility festivals associated with the winter solstice. But are they idolatry? Other practices we've picked up from the historical journey of our own culture. The early church didn't wear ties or use projection or have branded pamphlets for when visitors came into their churches. 
And these are all pieces of technology and culture that we've adopted over the years. But are they idolatrous? The debate at the seminary when I was there was mostly over um, First Nations practices like the smudging ceremony. A smudging ceremony is the practice of burning sage and other symbolic plants in a shell or a bowl to release uh, smoke. And a number of indigenous churches in North America had started using some sort of smudging ceremony as part of either their call to worship as they started out the service or in their time of confession when they offered their own prayers of confession before God. And similar to the ancient practice of Christians using incense in worship, the smoke rising up to heaven symbolized the prayers of God's people rising up to his throne, a pleasing aroma in his nostrils. But since the smudging ceremony isn't simply cultural, but also carries religious significance in native religions, it made a lot of people uncomfortable. Some people saw it as a beautiful way to adapt one small piece of indigenous culture for Christian worship, but other, other people saw it as a dangerous, slippery slope that would lead people back into idolatry and paganism. We have a natural tendency to try and create these categories of right and wrong, of what is okay and what is not when it comes to living as God's people. We try and establish clear categories of who is in and who is out of God's favor. And this was no less true in Jesus' own day when debates about theological rigor, the strictness of piety, adherence to the law, and engagement with the empire were just as intense and just as consequential as they are today. In Jesus' day, you had all these various religious factions, and we've talked about them a little bit um, throughout this series, but each of these different factions had different rubrics for how to measure who was in and who was out of God's favor, different guidelines for how to live a flourishing life in God's presence. And so you have the Pharisees, for example, who Jesus engages with pretty directly in this sermon and through most of his ministry. And the Pharisees believed that the way to appropriately live as God's people in a world of darkness was to adhere to a strict code of conduct that fell well within the boundaries of God's law. And so they developed these strict guidelines for dietary and bodily purity, how to prepare your food, what you could eat, how to wash your hands, how to bathe. The Pharisees were famous for their strict adherence to keeping the Sabbath with hundreds of clarifying rules about what it meant to keep or break the Sabbath, how many steps you could take in a Sabbath day, how hot you could keep the furnace, how many uh, pieces of wood you could use to keep your house warm, how much you could feed your animals, um, and what to do if you had unexpected guests and didn't have enough to feed them, and so on. To the Pharisees, the rules for staying in God's good graces were clear. Keep the law. Keep the letter of the law. But we've seen how Jesus challenges the Pharisees in this sermon already. He calls us to a righteousness greater than the righteousness of the Pharisees. God isn't interested in the letter of the law, Jesus says. The law is a means to an end, and that end is transformed hearts. God sees and cares about who people are at a heart level, 
And all of our obedience and piety and religious devotion, Jesus says, should flow out of who God is shaping us to be by his Holy Spirit. And in contrast to the Pharisees, of course, you have the Sadducees. And we see Jesus engaging with them at at times in his ministry, too. The Sadducees were a movement of the elite, the wealthy, centered in Jerusalem. Unlike the Pharisees who lived and worked throughout the countryside of Israel and Judea and whose message resonated in a powerful way with the common people, the Sadducees didn't really feel the need to gain followers to their way of thinking. They thought they had a pretty clear mandate from God. So members of the priesthood serving in the temple, members of the Sanhedrin, the high court in Jerusalem that advised the king of Israel, um, the Sadducees were people of power and of wealth who saw their power and wealth as a responsibility that God had given them to protect the true religion of his people. Living as captive people under imperial rule is always a fine line to walk. And the Sadducees took a very different approach than the Pharisees. The Sadducees saw no problem with adopting the cultural norms and rituals of their Greek and Roman rulers. They saw compromise as the only way to preserve true Jewish religion in the face of the empire. And so for them, it was better to adapt and survive than to be wiped out even if that meant changing some of their religious practices in some ways. Even though Jesus doesn't directly address the the Sadducees in the Sermon on the Mount, we still see hints of a critique coming through. It's not up to us, Jesus says, to preserve true religion. It's not up to us to save God's people. It's not up to us to bring the victory of God's kingdom over the kingdoms of this world. That puts too much trust in ourselves, too much trust in our own power. Don't take yourselves too seriously, Jesus says. Take God seriously. And there's other movements too in Jesus' time. The Essenes believed that the whole world was going to hell and that the only way to remain pure was to flee flee the city and towns and live together in caves in the mountains. So for them, for the Essenes, you're in God's favor if you flee to the hills to live a holy life. The zealots believed that the kingdom of heaven was coming to overthrow the kingdom of Caesar and that their role then was to train for war and prepare themselves to be the front lines of God's earthly army when he came to set them free. And so for the zealots, you're in God's favor if you join the resistance. What is our rubric for who is in and who is out? What are the shibboleths, the insight knowledge, the rules, the rituals that we use to judge whether a person is in God's favor or not? Do we hold people to a strict code of conduct like the Pharisees do? Do we judge people for failing to live in the ways that we expect followers of Jesus to live, dressing a certain way or holding to certain weekly habits and rituals? Or do we use wealth and power as a measure of God's blessing like the Sadducees did? Do we take our own growing wealth and influence as a divine mandate to live our lives the way that we think is best? Do we judge the poor in their poverty as irrelevant in the company of God's people? Or do we live in a separate Christian society like the Essenes? Do we judge people for not listening to Christian music 
or reading Christian books or sending their kids to Christian school? Or do we live in a constant state of war with culture the way the zealots did? Do we judge people for not taking up arms against the secular agenda, fighting to keep Christianity in a place of power and influence? How do we determine who is in and who is out? Who is a true believer and who is an imposter? Who is authentic and who is a hypocrite? But Jesus here, he tells us that these are the wrong questions. It's not up to us to judge who is in and who is out when it comes to membership in the kingdom of heaven. It's not up to us to decide which boxes need to be checked in order for others to enter the kingdom of God. Sure, don't cast your pearls before swine. Don't throw what is sacred to the dogs. But don't judge unfairly either. Don't try and fix your brother's behavior, your sister's behavior, when you are called to do the careful and unending work of self-reflection and self-evaluation. Don't be suspicious of the salvation of your sister or your brother. Don't approach others with an attitude of distrust. Don't approach God with an attitude of distrust. It's kind of interesting, I think, because there's actually quite a few scholars who just don't really know what to do with this section of the Sermon on the Mount. And part of it is because this, uh, this 12 verses can sometimes feel like Matthew still had all of these great sayings of Jesus that he wanted to get into the Sermon on the Mount, and so he kind of throws them all together right here at the end before he gets to the conclusion. And it ends up reading almost like the book of Proverbs or something like that, where you have all these apparently random sayings uh, together in a row without much regard for how they fit together. Don't judge, lest you be judged, for the rubric you use shall be used against you. Don't try and remove the speck from your brother's eye before you, but until you first remove the plank from your own eye. Cast not your pearls before swine, lest they be trampled. Ask, and it shall be given to you, for everyone who asks receives. What man would give his son a snake when he asks for a fish? How much more, then, will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, for such is the law and the prophets. They might appear like random sayings, that it's just a collection of sayings of Jesus that Matthew puts together at the end of the Sermon on the Mount here. And some people argue that that's exactly what's going on. But I think that the unifying theme between all of these sayings and the kind of narrative thread that ties them all together is that Jesus is inviting his followers to move from a posture of suspicion to a posture of trust. In this passage, Jesus invites us to shift our thinking from a place of judgment, from a place of suspicion, focused on evaluating and weighing the behaviors and motivations of others, to a place of trust, of openness, and of dependence, focused on evaluating and weighing our own behavior and motivations, not those of others. And the reason that we can make this shift, Jesus says, is because we trust in the goodness of our Heavenly Father. 
We can approach others with a posture of trust and openness because we know that our own salvation, our own status as God's beloved children is never at stake. We can trust others because we trust together in the God who leads us both. I read an article this week by Pancho Arguelles, a Mexican-American activist and community organizer who began his career working among the indigenous Mayan people of Chiapas in the mountains of Mexico. He now works in Houston, organizing the collection and distribution of important medical supplies for immigrant workers who have been fully or partially paralyzed in construction work. But in, in the article that I read this week, Arguelles wrote about the Latino concept of acompañamiento, which you could literally translate as accompaniment, but really means something more like journeying together. Acompañamiento. Acompañamiento means that we travel together as sisters and brothers in Christ, as equals. No one higher, no one lower, no one leading, no one following. All of us together following Christ. Journeying together, learning together, serving together, and worshiping together. And I think that this idea of acompañamiento is something like what Jesus calls us to in this passage today. An invitation to give up the power, the responsibility that we might feel for trying to be leaders in the global Christian milieu and instead adopting a posture of mutual learning, of mutual submission, of mutual encouragement as we all together seek to follow our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Last year at the worship symposium in Grand Rapids, I had the opportunity, oh no, it wasn't last year, it must have been two years ago. Last year I was at home with a newborn. <laughs> two years ago at the worship symposium in Grand Rapids, I had the opportunity to hear the story of Cheryl Bear, uh, a Christian musician and citizen of the Nadle Wute First Nation in central British Columbia. Cheryl Bear has become uh, kind of famous in her own right for writing and performing uh, music for Christian worship in the native language of her people. But growing up, Bear was ashamed of her people and her culture. Like many First Nations people, Cheryl Bear grew up under judgment, a colonial sort of judgment that identifies entire people as the problem and their eradication as the solution. Bear grew up believing that if she wanted to be successful, if she wanted to serve God, if she wanted to follow Jesus, it meant that she had to stop being native. If she wanted to please God, she thought, she needed to become more Christian and less Indian. When she was in university, Cheryl Bear was invited to attend an indigenous Christian festival in Hawaii. This was a festival for indigenous Christian religious leaders and communities from across Asia, Oceania, and North and South America. And Bear was amazed as she watched one group after another perform their indigenous dances and rituals, all in honor of the Jesus Christ who she was trying to follow and serve in her own life. 
the Hawaiians performed a luau, reminding her of God's grace and beauty. The Maori performed a haka, reminding her of God's power and might. The Filipinos performed a tinikling, reminding her of God, the joy of God's love. And the Mayans performed a danza de la conquista, reminding her of God's faithfulness in the destructive face of empire. And she wept. She wept because she had never been allowed to see her own indigenous culture as anything but antagonistic to the gospel of Jesus Christ. She wept because she had accepted the lie that her culture was not redeemable. Now, Cheryl Bear writes indigenous music and liturgies for Christian worship so that her people can worship Christ in their own language, using their own instruments, their own rituals, and their own cultural symbols. She teaches other indigenous Christian communities to do the same in their own context. She teaches, uh, she advises traditionally European denominations on relations with and ministry to indigenous communities, and she networks with First Nations Christian leaders across North America. Cheryl Bear's worship services naturally look very different than ours do. But I don't know that it's our place to judge whether they are Christian enough or not. I think that Jesus calls us to acompañamiento, to a journeying together, as we all together seek to follow Jesus. Jesus invites us to assume a posture of trust when we engage with others, rooted in the trust that we have in our good and heavenly Father, knowing that we are not our own, but belong to him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, O oh Lord our God, you call us to give up our suspicion, to give up our desire for control, to give up our very human need to be the gatekeepers of what it means to follow you. And you call us instead to open our hearts to our sisters and brothers, trusting entirely in your goodness and your faithfulness. And so, O oh Lord, we pray that you would fill us with an openness and a trust to see the ways in which your spirit is moving in the nations, throughout the world, and in our own midst, that we may examine ourselves, knowing that you love us as your own children. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord.